0: Hello everyone, I hope that you're all doing well. I'm really excited about this week because we have a great collection of stories just for you. Let's get into it as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. When the mist comes, stay inside at all costs. Written by Doomed Geek. I used to live and work in central London. I was a financial trader. It was a high-stakes environment. I knew of people who were millionaires by the time that they were 35, and others who were burnt out by the same age. I had eyes only for the riches. I was young, single, and in perpetual motion. I was rising before dawn to spend time in the gym, before working 12 hours straight through and then I would hit the bars and clubs and fall into bed after midnight. Not long after my 26th birthday, I had a nervous breakdown. After four days at home taking the medication that I had been prescribed and hating how it made me feel, I threw all my tablets away and went back to work. Or at least I tried to. I had a panic attack on the train and didn't even make it into the office. I ended up running out of the station and went to sit in a small square. There were a couple of wooden benches and a patch of overgrown grass. Tall buildings rose all around me. I was struggling to breathe and my face was wet with tears and I knew that I needed to make a change. So, a few weeks later, I moved to Cornwall. I had never been to Cornwall before. I decided to move there based on an internet search. And then I found an old fisherman's cottage to rent in a small village. Call it following my heart and call it a gut instinct. I did not worry about the details along the way. I just did it. I had a decent amount of money saved up and I did not need to earn anything for six months while I reset my life. I saw myself going for long windswept walks by the sea. Cooking hearty meals in the evening and starting my own business, something artistic, where I could work with my hands and connect with nature. It was going to be perfect. My journey from London to Cornwall was made by a train and then a long taxi journey. The taxi driver pulled over before we got to the village and mumbled something about the road and not being suitable. I wasn't happy about this, but I was too tired from the journey to argue. And I could see a weather-beaten sign on a wooden post, which said that the village was only a half mile away. So I climbed out and retrieved my suitcases from the back of the taxi. I was tempted to give the driver the finger as he drove away, but I counted a 10 instead and set off in the direction of the village. In fairness to the driver, the road wasn't suitable for driving. It was narrow and it was soon untarmacked and then running steeply downhill. Grass banks rose on either side and I couldn't see where it was heading. I ploughed on and was starting to wonder if I had gone the wrong way. When the road had leveled out and a few paces later, I had emerged onto a pebble beach. The view that I was presented with was wonderful. Beyond the beach, the sea reached out to a distant horizon. There wasn't a ship in sight to break the majestic spell of the ocean. A few feet away from where I stood, waves lapped gently onto the beach. It was so peaceful. The crowds and stress of London seemed like they belonged to another world. I took a deep breath and started to walk down the beach. I imagined how the small stones I could feel underfoot had formed over thousands of years, steadily being worn away and carried into place. Ahead of me, rows of cottages looked out over the sea. One of them was my new home. As I approached the cottages, I knew that coming to live here had been the right thing to do. The cottages looked like something from a postcard like something from another age. Their whitewashed stone walls were pitted and worn, but looked resilient and they were huddled closely together. In London, I had a small circle of friends, all of whom were connected to my work in one way or another, and all of whom had drifted away rapidly when I became sick. I had not known any of my neighbors. Taken in my new surroundings, I had the feeling that I would get to know my neighbors in the village soon, and that would be a good thing. It would mean that I was a part of a community, not just one more stranger in an uncaring city. The agency that I was letting the cottage from had posted the keys to me in London. I unlocked the door and then had to bend down to walk through without banging my head on top of the frame. The cottage was dark inside and cold. There is a strong smell of damp as well. This wasn't good, but the agency had told me the property had been empty for a while, so it wasn't entirely unexpected. I figured that after I had been there for a few days and had aired the place out, it would be fine. I carried my suitcase through to the front room. There is a sofa facing a window which looked out at the sea. I sat down. I would unpack in a moment. I just needed to rest first. It had been a long day after an incredibly difficult time in my life. I looked at the waves rising and falling and my eyes started to feel heavy. The next thing I knew I was blinking and looking at the light of a new day streaming in through the window. I was a bit stiff, but other than that, I felt totally refreshed. It was the best night's sleep that I had had in years. I checked my watch. If I would still be in London, I would have already gone to the gym and spent hours staring at figures on a screen. As it was, I was free to take my time as I made coffee and then had a long shower. The water rattled rather alarmingly in the pipes but it was nice and hot, and the pressure was good, so I had no complaints. I unpacked a change of clothes and decided to sort the rest of my things out later. I wanted to get out and about and explore the village and start meeting my neighbors. It was a bright and clear day. I was struck again by how quiet it was. There were no cars in the road, no music blaring out or sirens but then something squawked overhead. I looked up and saw a seagull circling. I waved in its direction and called out, Hey, how's it going? I thought that I was alone, but then I realized that I wasn't. An old man was standing in the open doorway of one of the cottages. He was looking at me with a disapproving expression on his face. I felt my cheeks redden. And I was about to tell him that I didn't usually talk to the wildlife, when he retreated into his cottage and closed the door. I sighed. That was not the ideal start to me getting to know my neighbors, but things would get better, I told myself, and I set off walking. No one else seemed to be out and about, though I could see smoke rising from the chimneys of some of the cottages. I headed along the beach. The sea was further out and I thought about how I would get to know the times of high and low tides as a part of my new life and I felt a warm glow inside. I was beyond the cottages now, following the sweep of the beach when I noticed someone standing on the beach. It was a young woman dressed in a raincoat that looked too big for her, a woolly hat and boots. Strands of curly dark hair stuck out from under the sides of her hat. She was staring out to sea and seemed to have not noticed me. Part of me thought that it would be best to leave her alone with her thoughts, but I decided to say hello, not just because she was one of my new neighbors, but because I also thought that she was very attractive. Wishing that I had paid more attention to my appearance before leaving my cottage, I went over to her good morning i said brightly she turned slowly to face me and my heart sank there were tears in her eyes i'm sorry i mumbled i I didn't mean to intrude that's okay she replied i was thinking i wanted to say something insightful then maybe she would smile and then i could say something funny to make her laugh and this whole situation would no longer be painfully uncomfortable. The only problem with this plan was that I couldn't think of a single thing to say. Instead, I looked at her and then at my shoes, while she brushed a strand of her hair away from her face. Well, I'd best be getting on, she said, finally, and set off walking back in the direction of the cottages. Sounds good i'll see you around i called after her which immediately felt like a stupid thing to say if i kept this up i figured every single person in the village would think that i was an idiot before the week was out feeling deflated i made my way slowly home and sat on the sofa looking at the sea before long my stomach had started to rumble i checked the time It was after midday, and I was famished. I had packed four cans of soup along with socks, t-shirts, a toothbrush, and the rest of the basics that I would need for the first few days. And I dug one of the cans out of the suitcase. There was a cooker in the cottage, and I was in need of a good clean, but it seemed to work okay. Now, I just needed to find a can opener. I hadn't brought one with me and couldn't find one after rooting through all the drawers in the kitchen. Not a problem, I thought. I could knock on a neighbor's door and ask to borrow a can opener. And I could do this without making a fool of myself. Surely. I took a deep breath and I went for it. The cottage next door did not have a doorbell that I could see, or a knocker. So I tapped on the door with my knuckles. I was relieved when it opened a moment later. The lady who had answered the door seemed familiar, which made no sense to me, until she tucked a strand of her dark curly hair behind her ear and I had a eureka moment. Hi, I said. I think I met your daughter earlier. And then I bit my lip, wondering if once again I was being stupid. What if the woman that I had seen on the beach was not this lady's daughter? She could have been a younger sister or have no relation at all. Thankfully, the lady in the doorway smiled and said, Ah, yeah, Jane mentioned that she had met a young man earlier, and I was wondering if it was our new neighbor. Please, come in. I had a relieved smile on my face as I stepped inside. The cottage was warm and cozy. There were trinkets and picture frames on a mantelpiece over a fireplace. A big old fashioned clock on the wall, a bookcase crammed to the brim with paperbacks and hardbacks and magazines, and a matching sofa and chairs which looked like you could just sink into them and be wonderfully comfortable. There was also a small table in front of one of the chairs which had a glass on it. and The glass was half full, with what looked to me like whiskey. It struck me as a bit early for drinking strong liquor and I realized that I was staring at the glass when the lady said, How are you settling in? She sounded and looked a bit embarrassed, and I once again felt like I was making a mess of things, which made me overcompensate when I replied, far too cheerfully and loudly, Great, really good, thank you. In fact, the only thing missing from my life at the moment is a can opener. All credit to her for not wincing, Instead, she said, Well, you are very welcome to borrow one. I'll be back in a minute. When she was out of the room, I kicked myself, literally jabbed the toes of one foot into the side of my other foot. It hurt, I winced, and I felt like I deserved it. The lady returned, brandishing a can opener. Oh, here you go, she said. I thanked her, and I should have left it at that. But between the lunchtime whiskey at home and her daughter's tears earlier on the beach, I figured that something was wrong and I wanted to reach out. I stood there holding the can opener and swallowed as I got my courage up and then said, I hope you don't mind me asking, but I was wondering if you and your daughter are alright. At my question, her bright facade dimmed. Her shoulders slumped slightly and a sad smile appeared on her face. Would you like a drink? She asked. I said I would because it felt like the right thing to do. She topped up her own glass and poured a generous measure for me. I settled onto the sofa and took a sip. I spluttered and said thank you in a hoarse voice. This was not bargain shop whiskey. It was the real deal. Holding her glass, she walked over to the mantelpiece picked up a framed photograph, and brought it over to me. It showed a small group of men gathered around in front of a boat. That's the crew of the Marlin, she told me. All local men, all fishermen. The man in the center with the daft grin and beard is my husband. Her voice faltered and then she continued. Was my husband. Was Jane's father. Ten years ago, the Marthen went down off the coast, and all on board were drowned. Jane was twelve years old. She was devastated. I mean, we all were. Tomorrow was the anniversary of the accident. It's hard, so very hard. Once more, her voice trailed off, but this time, she simply looked into her glass, not taking a drink, just gazing at the amber liquid. I'm so sorry. I said and then quickly sipped my drink because once again, I couldn't find any words that could possibly fit. When my glass was empty, I promised that I would bring the can opener back later and then I saw myself out. I wasn't much of a drinker, especially not in the day and on an empty stomach. And the whiskey had clearly hit me hard because I couldn't find my key and I didn't understand why. I didn't have that many pockets and it had to be in one of them. I was still fumbling in my pockets when I noticed the old man was back in his open doorway. He was looking at me and was apparently still not impressed. I took a deep breath. If this had been London, I would have blamed him or asked him what his problem was. But this was the village, I reminded myself. The small place where I wanted so much to fit in. Good afternoon, I said to him. I had the awful feeling that I was slurring my words, but I kept going. I'm new here, it's lovely to meet you. He didn't break into a smile or say how pleased he was to meet me, but I plowed on. I've just been talking to the lady next door, she told me about her husband and the other man. It's awful, especially in such a small community where everybody must know each other. The old man's face twisted into a sneer. "'They were fools,' he said. His voice was low and harsh, a smoker's growl. "'Fools and dead because of it. I warned them, told them not to take the boat out when there was a mist coming, but they didn't listen to me.' And then he stepped back inside and closed the door. I was shocked and confused, and I really needed to go to the bathroom." still unable to find the key i tried the door handle it turned and i lurched inside i had unlocked the door and the key was still on the table what an idiot i thought and i stumbled towards the bathroom the rest of the day was a write-off i managed to make some soup and then i fell asleep on the sofa i woke up feeling disturbed from dreams that i immediately forgot but i didn't have the will to drag myself to bed so I closed my eyes and dropped back into sleep. At some point I woke up briefly again. The room was in darkness, and I couldn't see the ocean through the window. Everything was obscured by a grayness that was drifting past my vision. Sometime around dawn, I finally roused myself and went to stand in the shower until the hot water ran out. I opened another can of soup for breakfast, because I didn't have anything else then, and decided that it was time to get organized. I made a to-do list. First item was to stock up on food. There didn't seem to be any shops in the village though. I would have to shop online and hope there would be a local supplier who could deliver to my doorstep despite the state of the road. I turned on my laptop and my phone. I already knew that there was no internet connection in the cottage so I was going to use my phone as a hotspot, until I made a better arrangement. Which it would have been fine if my phone had been showing any bars. I walked all around the cottage and there was still no signal, so I went to stand in the street. Still nothing, I swore to myself. Being in the middle of nowhere was peaceful and scenic, but being cut off like this was so infuriating. I swore out loud at a circling seagull and did not care what anybody thought about that and then I went to ask the lady next door where she got her shopping from. When she opened the door I could tell straight away that something was wrong. She looked very pale and close to tears. I forgot about shopping and I asked her what had happened. It's Jane, she replied in a shaky voice. I thought she was in her room, but when she didn't get up this morning, I went in and her bed hadn't been slept in. There was a sea mist last night, and I think she was out in it. I'm so worried about her. At the best of times, this would have been concerning. But today was the anniversary of her father's death at sea, alongside the other crew members. This was clearly something that she had been struggling with. It's going to be okay, I said. I'll go look for her. I'm sure she won't have gone far. In my heart, I did not know if this was true, but I wanted to appear strong and calm and do everything that I could to help. Resisting the urge to run, I set off along the beach, heading to where I had last seen Jane. But the beach was deserted. I kept going. I walked for miles and there was no sign of her. Hoping that maybe she had turned up back at home by now, or that she was being confronted by a neighbor, I turned around and walked back towards the village. I was in sight of the cottages when I saw something in the sea. It was moving in the tide, close to the edge of the beach. I ran forward into the water not thinking about getting wet, and I leaned over and picked up the thing that I had seen. It was a woolen hat. Jane's. I held the hat and I looked out over the sea. There was nothing else there. Where before I had seen beauty, now all I saw was a bleak emptiness. Had Jane walked out into this vast expanse on purpose, or had she lost away in the mist and fallen and been swept away? I had no proof that anything dreadful had happened, other than that the hat in my hand in her absence. But these were enough. I knew in my guts that she was gone, drowned like her father and the rest of the crew on that tragic vessel ten years ago. I wiped it a tear with my hand and turned away from the cold, cruel sea and went to see Jane's mother. Before I made it to her cottage, I saw the old man who thought so little of me. He was walking towards me along the beach. His movements were slow and laborious. He looked exhausted and his eyes were bloodshot. I could see that clearly as he came closer. Do you know, I asked, about Jane? Yes, he said in a ragged voice. My mother told me. She went out into the mist and now, he began to add but I interrupted him. And now what? I shouted, suddenly furious. You told me that you knew there was a miscoming. coming. You could have warned everybody not to go out last night. Not to take the risk. He wouldn't look me in the eye when he replied. No one would have listened. Especially not Jane, the way that she was hurting. You could have tried. I screamed in his face. I had lost control. He flinched, almost as if I had physically struck him, and then said quietly, I should have. I should have tried, but I didn't. I gave up and wrapped myself in the bitterness that is all I've known these last ten years. Finally he looked at me, and I could see the pain in his eyes when he said, No it is not a gift, it is a curse. My anger with him was spent, and now I felt only pity. It's too late now, I said, it's over. He shook his head, no, he said and his gaze drifted past me out to the sea. When he spoke again, his voice was a whisper. The mist is returning. I looked at the sea. Tendrils of gray were rising up over the water. They were joining and twisting, and within what felt like seconds, the horizon was lost behind a dense mist. As quickly as it had formed, the mist began to roll towards us. I couldn't take my eyes off of it, and I did not move, even though a part of me knew that I should get off the beach and back to my cottage where I would be safe until the mist had passed. Somewhere behind me, I heard pebbles crunching. It was the sound of somebody hurrying along the beach, but I did not turn around. I looked into the mist and felt myself being drawn into it. Into the mist embrace and then a voice called out, a loud and urgent cry. Here, it said, here. It snapped me out of my daze. I spun around and saw that it was the old man. He waved me over and I stumbled to his side. I saw that he was holding a lantern now, an old gasoline lamp, that he had sparked to life with a cigarette lighter. What are you doing? He didn't look at me. He stared into the mist and replied, trying to make it right. And then he began to swing the lantern from side to side. Its glow was bright in the mist, which continued to sweep in. It was all around us now and still he swung the lantern and stared ahead. I felt like he was watching, waiting. But for what? My pulse racing, I looked into the mist and saw... a dark shape. It was elusive and I thought for a moment that I had imagined it, but then I saw these silhouettes of a hand, a face, the darkness and the mist, it was a person, and they were moving towards me becoming clearer, a coldness spread through my veins and bile rose into the back of my mouth, the thing that I was looking at was not a person, not a living and breathing human being, it was a grotesque apparition. Its eyes were dark hollows in a pale, fleshless skull. Its jaw hung open. Seawater dripped from its ribcage and flowed down the bones of its legs. Its skeletal fingers reached out, towards me, I thought. I wanted to scream, but fear had stolen my voice. I wanted to run, but I was paralyzed, helpless. And now more nightmares were emerging from the mist. The scraps of clothes hung off the skeletons of some. They all shuffled slowly forwards, being drawn, I now realized, towards the lantern. The old man was shaking, and the lantern rattled in his terrified grip, but he still swung it. What horrors remained out there? I wondered. What else did he want to call for it? My answer came moments later when a new figure came into my view. The mist wrapped itself around its bleached bones, and it drifted through its skeletal remains, and in its arms it carried a body. A jolt of shock passed through me. It was carrying Jane. The thing moved slowly forwards, until it was a couple of feet away from the lantern. And then it laid Jane gently down on the beach, as gently as a loving father would do. The old man looked down at Jane. Tears were flowing freely down his face as he said. Now she has been returned by her kin. The mist is old alive. Let it have mine. He put the lantern down and walked into the mist. The skeletal forms turned and followed in his wake, until all were lost from sight. The mist holding them retreated then, and I could see more of the beach in front of me, and the edge of the water. Its waves were lapping against the pebbles as the mist continued to fall away, until it was a faint grey haze out over the sea. And then it was gone the sea was still and blue under a clear sky i now down next to jane her eyes opened and she looked up at me my heart soared but it was a happiness that was edged by sadness jane was free to live her life once more but the old man had been taken in her place and he would become a thing of bone A creature of the mist. A big thanks to Ghostbed for sponsoring this week's episode. Can't get to sleep. Maybe it's nightmares or maybe it's just an uncomfortable mattress. With Ghostbed, you can finally get the scary good sleep that you deserve. For more than two decades, GhostBed has been making mattresses, pillows, and other sleep products designed for maximum comfort and support. Tired of waking up in a cold sweat, every GhostBed mattress features signature cooling materials, including their patented Ghost Ice technology, so you can fall asleep faster and stay asleep longer. Get fast and free shipping with most orders shipping within 24 hours, plus you'll get a 101-night sleep trial with free returns if you're not 100% comfortable on your new mattress. For a limited time, our listeners can get 30% off GhostBed mattresses plus two free pillows. Use promo code MrCreeps at GhostBed.com CreepsCast to take advantage of the offer. That's GhostBed.com CreepsCast with promo code MrCreeps. I'm an animal control expert who specializes in cryptids. These are my stories, written by Mr. Beef Thighs. For years, I was the guy to call if you had a squirrel in your attic. I mean to a lot of people, I'm still that guy, but over the last 20 years, I branched out to other less common infestations. Now I'm the guy you call if there's a haunted doll rummaging through your attic, or a Sasquatch who's trampling your flower beds. I love my job. The specializations that I've acquired have allowed me to travel across the country, meet incredible people and experience cryptids like few have ever done before. It doesn't hurt that the pay is great, but the stories are even better. I have one short story for you now. It's more of a public service announcement than anything else, really. I've dealt with every sort of infestation from Sasquatches, Spray human urine around area of sighting and it will avoid the area. Demonic presences, usually need to bring a priest in, sometimes can be tricked into inhabiting a lesser creature, like a frog. And jackalopes, it's just a bunny with some antlers. Put it in a cage and give the poor thing a carrot. But recently there's been one cryptid that has been growing more and more invasive into human settlements. The Hide Behind Most commonly found in the forests of the northern United States and Canada, the hide behind is one cryptid that cannot easily be dealt with. In fact, I'm not sure it's even possible for one of these to be bagged and tagged like we normally would with other cryptids. To my knowledge, no hide behind has ever been killed, maimed, dazed, or even simply removed from a residence. Once it has made a claim to an area, whether it be a local forest, a cave or even in one particular case, a bass pro shop, it will defend that area to the death. First documented by the Native Americans, then by Lumberjacks in the PNW of America, the hide behind is one of the lesser known, but cryptids on the continent, but without a doubt one of the most dangerous. No one really knows what they look like. As the name suggests, as soon as they are seen, they quickly duck out of view to hide behind anything in the vicinity. In the wild, this would be trees and rocks. In your home, it could be a corner, a kitchen cabinet, a television, or literally anything else that they can manipulate their body to hide behind an object of any size. In the few accounts of these sightings that we have on record, they have been described as everything from a lion-bear slash lion hybrid to a frail and elderly woman with long arms and rashes on her skin. Because of this wide discrepancy in their descriptions, they are believed to be shapeshifters that can change their shape based on what they believe will best get their potential victim to come closer and investigate the sighting. I don't know why the hide behinds are moving into suburbs. I would guess destruction of their natural habitat, but it is becoming a real problem. That's why I'm going to share this story with you now. So you know what to do if one shows up in your home. I pulled up to Tim's house around 12pm on a Tuesday. He had called in to tell us that there was a demonic entity in his house and that we needed to remove it ASAP. They always demand ASAP. Tim had nothing going on but people are so much more demanding than they were 20 years ago. I took a quick look around the house and it was pretty apparent that there wasn't any sort of demon in this residence. Not only was there no reaction to the holy water and a Ouija board that I brought with me, but Tim also didn't have normal symptoms of a demonic haunting, bad dreams, a sleep paralysis, or the witnessing of any telekinetic events. After further questioning, he described what he had seen in more detail. First, I was sitting right there on the couch watching television when I got the feeling that I was being watched. I turned my attention to the screen door and for just a second, I saw a bear looking in through the screen, but it wasn't a bear you see. A bear would just keep on staring at me or keep poking at the door, but this thing just ducked out of view as quick as can be. It was like it was trying to sneak up on me and I had caught it in the act. It bothered me something awful, but I just grabbed my gun and set it on my lap and kept on watching TV and eventually that feeling like I was being watched just kind of melted off. It was all peaches and cream until she showed up a few days later. The she that Tim was referring to was a new human form that the hide behind was taking. I assumed that it was because of the lack of reaction to the bear form that it had previously shown itself as. Like I said earlier, the hide behind wants you to look for it, to come closer, like an anglerfish. It dangles something in front of you in an attempt to bring you closer. It's a lazy hunter. I was out in the garage in my workshop and that feeling came over me again, that being watched feeling. I turn around and I'm looking out the garage door and I don't see nothing. But then out of nowhere I see a lady's head and shoulder pop out from the corner of the garage. And the second that she sees me eyeing her, she pops right back around the corner from where she came from. Well, this time, I went looking around for her. I gave her a wide berth around the corner, because I used to live in New York City for a year in the 70s, so I've seen crazy people. And she looked crazy and I didn't want to grab at me. So I gave a wide berth around that corner and there wasn't no one there. I walked all around the house and I didn't see anyone, not even footprints. Tell me that ain't demonic. It wasn't demonic. It was a hide behind it, and I told the man as such. I told him living out here on the edge of town made him an easy target for it. I told him that there really isn't any way to get rid of him or scare them off. I told him that he could try to leave his house for a year at minimum, and maybe, with some luck, it would leave on its own. But the best bet would be for him to burn the place down and never come back. Well, he didn't like that answer. My family lived in this house for three generations. I ain't leaving and I sure as heck ain't burning nothing down. I'll tell you what I'm gonna do. I'll keep my shotgun on me and when I get that feeling, I'll shoot it. It works for bears and that's the meanest thing around these parts. Don't see why it wouldn't work for this, what you call it, a hide behind. You can't argue with anyone over the age of 65. People get set in their ways and their beliefs calcify, so instead, I was honest with them. I told him two things. The first thing that I told him was that eventually, he would get that feeling that he was being watched and he would get his gun and start looking around for the hide behind, only he wouldn't find it. That's what happens in all these cases because at that point, it found the best hiding spot that it can possibly get. The only place you won't be able to lay eyes on it, even if you tried. Directly behind you, and at that point it's too late for you. The second thing that I told him was that I'd be back in two days and more than likely he'd be dead. And then I left. Two days later, I pulled my van up to Tim's driveway to find the screen door open and blowing in the wind. I didn't even need to cross the threshold of the house to find him. He was everywhere. On the floor, the ceiling, the walls. The smell was Unbelievable. I poured some gasoline on the front porch and lit it with a match. The house was an inferno within 30 seconds. I got in my van and started to pull out of the driveway, and I took one last look at the house and then behind it, into the tree line where I saw for just a split second a young boy before he quickly pulled back and disappeared behind a thin little tree. I was hundreds of miles away by lunchtime. I say all of this to tell you If you ever think you might have a hide behind in your house or even in the area, leave. Burn the place down if you can, so new people don't move in. These things are like bears. If they know that they can get food someplace, they're just going to keep on coming back. And if you get that feeling that you're being watched and you just can't figure it out, call your loved ones, because it's standing directly behind you. A few days ago, I had posted a PSA on this website about what to do if you encounter a hide behind in your local area. Well, a few hours after that I checked my inbox and had about a million questions from a quarter million people. What kind of van do you drive? 2003 Dodge Sprinter van with a man Man sprayed painted on the side. Will my body wash attract to succubus? No, but they are intensely attracted to frustrated virgins so. You may or may not have a problem there. Can I come along with you on one of your jobs? Absolutely not. I barely make it out alive myself half the time. But the most common question that I received was, how'd you get your start in the business? Now, I'm a busy man, like I said in my last post. Halloween is right around the corner, and this is my peak season. And thus, you'll want your toddler winding up in a house where half of the Halloween decorations ain't actually decorations well then you gotta let me get to work so in lieu of answering how'd you get your start in the biz to all of y'all individually i'll post the story of my first job here to nip any further asking of that question in the bud in the year 2000 i was 22 years old and just starting out my life in the biz as y'all have been putting it Pulling snakes out of toilets and charging down skunks using a trash can as a shield against its spray I loved the job. Wasn't any different than what I did as a kid growing up in middle Georgia. Only now I was getting paid for it. Money wasn't great but small town living is cheap and I kept a roof over my head and food on the table. Over time and through word of mouth my little business grew until I was the premier rat man in Talafero County. Granted, the county population was less than 2K, so business wasn't exactly booming, but hey, I'm proud of it. One day I'm in my truck, this was back before the van, in a Taco Bell drive-thru and I got a call on my cell, unknown number. I answer, Tell you feral rat Ratman, you need something? And the voice on the other end was frantic, screaming about something stuck in his mudroom, but he wouldn't give any specifics. I could tell from the man's accent and his clear discomfort and the idea of an animal being in his house that he was city folk. You know, a real life Atlanta dandy. Some of those city folk had two homes on the nearby lakes, Oconee and Clark's Hill. But I was shocked when he told me that his home was in Union County, nearly 130 miles away. I asked him how he got my number and he told me that he had found one of my business cards on his kitchen table I told him that I would be there in 3 hours and I hung up. Now here's the fishy part. I didn't have any business cards. I still don't but I still get calls. Sometimes people call me saying they found my card on the kitchen table or in their pocket or slipped up under the windshield wiper of their car. One lady about 10 years ago said that she got out of the shower and my phone number was written right there on the fogged up bathroom mirror. That woman straight up thought that I was the devil until I got that family of puckwudgies out of her basement, got them jealous by talking loudly on the phone about how much nicer more expansive a nearby cave system was than this horrible basement. After that, she thought that I could walk on water. Truth is, I don't know what's pushing business my way. I don't know why I was chosen to do the work. I do, but that's the fact of the matter. I was chosen for it. Well, anywho, back to my first job. I pulled up to the client's house, or I guess the better word for it would be compound. The property was completely surrounded by a seven-foot-tall security fence that contained the main house, a small chicken run, a sauna, and a handful of small windowless buildings that dotted the forested property. After speaking to the owner via intercom, he remotely opened the gate and greeted me, as I pulled up the driveway of the main house. He was a wiry, rat-faced, dead-eyed man who looked and smelled like he hadn't showered in days, maybe weeks. His greasy hair clung to a greasier forehead as he reached his open hand towards me. Hello, we spoke on the phone. My name's Dave. His accent betraying him as a foreigner in these parts. Elmer, I replied. Not from around here, Dave. Oh. Dave's face dropped as if he was upset that he had been so easily discovered as an outsider. Oh, no, not from the south. This is a vacation house for the family and I. The winters down here are mild compared to up north. I couldn't believe this guy had a wife smelling like he did. Where's the family? I'm down here doing some maintenance just for the week. The whole family won't be down here for another two months or so. Alright, what's the problem? Dave stepped close to me. I mean, really close. Like Eskimo kisses close and asked me. You deal with this stuff often, huh? Your card makes it seem so. Thankfully, you took a step back. Honestly, I'm not even sure where I got this card in the first place. So, uh, got that card on you, Dave? Yeah, here. He handed the card over to me. It was a plain white business card with black text that read, Elmer Ratman Boggs, animal controlled encrypted specialist. His prices are unbelievable. The back of the card had a little picture of a ghost along with my phone number. It's at this point that I should tell you, these cards are different every single time. I still don't know where they come from and I stopped caring too. Each one has some stupid pun on it. He's got the spirit. Half price on April Ghoul's Day. I've even seen one that had a picture of me wearing a French maid's outfit with the words, Plagued by paranormal entities. Call Elmer. splashed across it. I don't like that one, and I have no idea where that picture came from, so don't even ask. Yeah, I deal with these kinds of things all the time, I said. Now show me where the critter's at." Dave led me down the hill on which the main house stood and out to one of these smaller buildings that punctuated the tree line. "'It's in here,' Dave said as we approached a small shed about 10 by 10. A large padlock held the door in place. "'I thought you said it was in your mud room, I asked. "'Oh, yes, while I was panicked on the phone, I suppose,' Dave explained. As you can see, we keep chickens here, and when the boys are here, we like to go hunting. This is where we clean and butcher our animals. Good enough explanation for me. Alright, open it up. Dave opened it up and practically ran back towards the main house as I stepped into the room. It was all white, painted cinder block walls, fluorescent lighting, laminate flowing with a drain in the middle of the room. A large hook hung from the ceiling to hang a deer carcass. There was a countertop with a sink and a few drawers, probably knives in there, a wall-mounted security camera. I would like to know more about that, but what really demanded my attention was floating on air in the top corner of the room facing the wall. It was a human head. I couldn't believe it. Nowadays, this is an average Wednesday, but imagine you're in my position. Your neighbor calls you over to help get a raccoon out of the attic. And then you get there and he's like, oh, oh wait, never mind, it's a decapitated human head. Oh yeah, and it flies around like a helium balloon. That's right, folks, a floater on my first day. A real trial by fire. I didn't panic, not sure how, but I didn't. I took a step back slowly, but apparently not slow enough as I watched the head turn to face me. It was a woman's head with long black hair, eyes gouged out. Black dried blood caked all over it and it had a tail. A few inches of a spinal column sticking out of the bottom. I stepped out of the shed and slammed the door before it did anything else. Dave called to me. I turned to see a smelly butt calling from an upstairs window of the main house. Guy was just going to leave me to die out here. Can you get rid of it? Oh yeah, buddy, I can do that. I was talking out of nowhere, but we need to talk. I told Dave that I could get it out, but that it would be expensive, very expensive. I also told him that I would need some time, a few days. I made it some BS about rituals and waiting for the correct phase of the moon, but in all reality, I had no idea what I was going to do and I just needed enough time to look around on the internet to figure out what the heck I was dealing with and how it should be handled. I told him that I would have to go home to get things ready, but... That I would be back in a few days to fix his floating head problem. He made a counter offer. He would give me a cash advance right now and to go into town and gather all the necessary supplies for rituals and the cleansings, and I could stay the night in the property so that I wouldn't have to drive three hours home. He would also give an additional bonus if I could have the cursed Nagin removed within the next 24 hours. I asked him if he had internet access, and he said he did. So I accepted. I could kill 40k rats and still not make the money that I was going to make in the next 24 hours if I could pull this off. I took the extremely generous cash advance and zipped out of the compound to buy my supplies. I drove the 40 minutes south to an old gold mining town and found an electronics store where I bought a laptop computer and a mouse. That's all that I really needed. But I couldn't go back empty-handed when I had promised an elaborate ritual. So I popped into a few of those novelty gold mine stores and bought some fool's gold, a few pretty rocks, a nice hat, and that was just for me, and a peacock feather. Then I headed back to the compound. I spent the entire drive back pinching myself, wondering if I had finally lost my marbles, questioning my fate replaying every single episode of X-Files over and over in my head. I decided that it didn't matter if I was crazy or not. Either way, it was happening. I got back to the compound, parked the car and brought my newly bought equipment up to the room that I would be using on the second floor of the main house. And then I asked Dave for the key to the shed. I wanted one more look at the head. I slowly opened the shed door and I peeked inside. The head was still floating in the top corner of the room facing the wall. I stood for a while watching it. It slowly bobbed up and down as if floating in water. I watched what little of the neck was left the vibrate as gentle moans emanated from it. I cleared my throat. The head slowly turned towards me. Its expression didn't change. It didn't lose any elevation either seemingly wasn't interested in me at all. I took a quarter out of my pocket and tossed it up towards the head, where it had planked off its cheek and bounced onto the floor below. The head remained neutral. This thing didn't give a crap about me. Might as well have called it my dad. I left the shed, locked the door behind me, and headed up to my room to do some research. This was the hardest part when I started this gig. How do you tell the difference between a gnome and a leprechaun, a fairy and an elf, a wendigo and a skinwalker? What happens if you get it wrong? Well, I'll tell you what happens. You get hurt or you die. Six years ago, I made the mistake of misidentifying a band of Nymeragar as Rocky Mountain Hill Dwarves and I lost two fingers in a bite-sized chunk out of my butt. I've learned my lesson the hard way, research, 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 it's the name of the game and this was a tough case to start with. Floating heads appear all over Native American lore, especially in the Iroquois and Wyandot histories. But their heads were different. For one, they had wings and talons, the one that I was dealing with floated. And they're also like six feet tall, and this one was just your regular-sized disembodied head that just so happened to have taken flight. There is also the behavior... The Iroquois version of the just kind of flew around and terrorized anyone who was unlucky to have stumbled upon it, while the Mohawk histories say that it's out for revenge against those who gave it an undignified death. But the big problem with oral histories is that they change. One day someone can't remember something so they throw their own wrinkle in there. It's like a centuries-long game of telephone that started with Jessica has great hair and ends with Death metal head eats babies. At least this head didn't seem to mind my company. It wanted whatever was in the direction of that top corner of the shed that it was entombed in. I just couldn't for the life of me figure out what that was. I had a hunch but nothing solid yet. I looked at the clock and realized that it was nearly midnight. I opened my door to head to the bathroom to go to the bathroom and wash my face before bed and I ran directly into Dave, who had seemingly been standing right outside my bedroom door. Big day tomorrow, he said. "Uh, Yes, sir, big day. Will you get it done? Does the Pope wear a funny hat? Amusing. He didn't smile. I'm fixing to wash my face before bed, and we'll be out there bright and early tomorrow morning. We'll. Dave didn't seem happy to be included in that last sentence. Oh, yes, sir, I need your help with the ritual, I said back to him. It's a two-man job. This isn't what I'm paying you for, he sneered. Oh, don't worry, you don't have to do nothing. Just need you in the room. I was talking out my butt again. Nothing too big, just need you holding a peacock feather is all. Humph. he exhaled from his nose sharply and stared at me with his dead black eyes for a few seconds before marching off. Good night. I was washing my face in the bathroom and realized that I never picked up an extra toothbrush when I was in town. Now I don't know about where you're from, but people that I know always have an extra toothbrush laying around. Especially people with families like Dave said he had. So I did a little light snooping through the drawers in the bathroom and you know what I found? Well it wasn't a toothbrush. It was a loose panel on base of the bathroom counter. I quietly pulled it back and found, stuffed inside, a hammer in a plastic bag. I opened the plastic bag and dumped the contents into my hand. Driver's licenses, a dozen of them at least, all women. I fingered through them quickly looking at the pictures. Names and dates when one of them caught my eye. Misty O'Connor. I recognized her immediately because you never forget the face of the first flying decapitated head that you see. You just don't. I don't make the rules. This guy, Dave. My hunch was right. The cameras, the multiple deer cleaning shacks, the seven-foot security wall to protect you from what Dave, the extremely high turkey population of Union County. No way Jose, I knew what I was going to do. The next morning, Dave unlocked the shack and held it shut while I gave him instructions. He was going to stand off to the right side of the shed while I went into the room and tied a blindfold around the head. Once the head was blind, I would signal him to come in and he would place the peacock feather in the head's mouth. And then I told him the head would disintegrate into a fireball, and that he could pay me the rest of my money. It was all crap, of course, but if brains was made of leather, old Dave could hardly saddle a Junebug. I took over holding the door from Dave and motioned for him to walk off to the right side of the shed. I felt the pressure on the other side of the door relax as the head floated to the right, following its sense of where Dave was. I entered the shed and found the head floating at chest height, gnashing its teeth at the wall that protected Dave. Hey Misty, shh, it's okay. I told the head in the same voice that I used for dogs and cats and sometimes lizards. I'm on your side, we're gonna get this son of a gun. I looped a piece of cloth around the head covering the empty sockets where the eyes used to be, and I held the two loose ends in my hand like a leash. The head pulled gently, as if agreeing to my unspoken plan. My other end held a piece of fool's gold for literally no reason, other than convincing crap for brains Dave that my plan was totally legit. I know, Davey, come on in, I shouted towards the open door. The head of Misty O'Connor pulled the leash gently, following the path that Dave took as he walked the perimeter of the building. Dave then appeared in the doorway looking like a total idiot, by holding out his peacock feather towards the head like a priest, would hold a crucifix towards a vampire. So all I have to do is put the feather in its mouth? Dave asked, his voice cracking and clearly terrified. I faked strength and sucked in a few short breaths, pretending to be fighting for my life, holding back this monster. Ah, just do it already, I can't hold it for much longer. Dave shrieked as he shoved the peacock feather into Misty's mouth. The head slowly pulled the feather in with its lips and teeth and gave a few over-exaggerated, cod like chews before swallowing. The mangled feather dropped from the open neck at the bottom of the head and landed on the floor with a wet plop. I stopped straining and started to relax. It's working. It's losing energy. I shot it at Dave in fake exhilaration. So that's it? Dave asked, catching his breath. We killed this thing. The head tugged on its leash a little harder at the last word. Yeah, we got her, I said back. Well, then I don't need you anymore. Dave said as in one fluid motion, he pulled a knife out from behind his back and he lunged at me. Everything went according to plan. I released the blindfold or leash and Misty was on Dave like a pit bull on a preschooler. First, she bit his knife-wielding hand off of the wrist, and then in a split second of confusion, she bit a sizable chunk out of his neck. Dave collapsed in a heap on the floor, trying to bat his one-time victim with his remaining hand, but she was far too quick for him. By the time that he tried to swat her, She was already on the other side of his body, biting off another chunk. Eventually, he stopped fighting, and that's when it got really ugly. He lay on the floor of his kill room, crying and begging for mercy, like so many women had done before. And just like those women, he wouldn't get any. I looked away, but the horrible sound of breaking bone made me look back. Misty's jaw was unhinging, breaking, expanding, Then, like a boa constrictor, she began the tedious process of slowly, almost tenderly, swallowing him whole. She started at the feet, which were easy enough, but around the thighs she began to flick her chin forward and tilt her head back to help the fresh meat go down. Less snake-like and more Komodo dragon-like, Dave screamed the entire time. The last thing to go was one of Dave's outstretched arms, which she greedily slurped up like a noodle. I'm not going to lie, once she finished, it was awkward. We both just kind of looked at each other for what felt like an eternity. Eventually, I had to break the silence. It just felt too weird, so I said, Bye, Misty. And then I immediately felt like an idiot for saying something so stupid. I mean, what am I, five? After another few seconds, Misty erupted into a small fireball and completely vanished. Turns out I was actually right about that part. Felt good to be right. I phoned the police and answered their questions when they showed. Told them that I was here for an appointment and noticed some weird stuff and they searched the property and that was that. They found two other girls, one was still alive. Of course, they think that Dave was on the run, but it is at least it gave some families some closure. And then I walked back to my truck, upset about not getting paid more than the advance which I had already spent, when I felt a weight in my pocket. I reached in and pulled out an envelope of cash. That's how it works, a lot like the business cards. I have no idea how it just shows up and I don't ask questions. Yeah, I hope this has answered some of your questions. Maybe after Halloween I can answer a few more for y'all, or maybe I could tell you about the two years that I spent traveling. Either way, I hope you enjoyed my stories, and if you ever need me, here you already have my card. It's 2023, the holidays are behind us, and a new year is ahead. There's just one more gift to be given, and guess what? It's for you. Give yourself the healthy and delicious gift that keeps on giving all year long. Wild Grain. Wild Grain is the first ever Bake from Frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. Wild Grain uses a slow fermentation process. That's easier on your belly, lower in sugar and rich in nutrients and antioxidants, unlike typical supermarket bread. Every item bakes in 25 minutes or less as well, which is very convenient. To kick off the year, Wild Grain is offering delicious products such as an ancient grain sourdough loaf, a fresh artisan fettuccine pasta. I received both of these items in my Wild Grain box, and both were absolutely delicious. They tasted better than the regular bread and pasta that I normally get at the store. Much more fresh. My favorite had to have been the ancient grain sourdough loaf. It was great for sandwiches or just good on its own, with some butter or oil. And I felt good after eating it, not weighed down or too full. Plus for every new member, Wild Grain donates six meals to the Greater Boston Food Bank, so you can eat good and do good all at the same time. All you have to do is sign up at wildgrain.com slash creep and choose which type of box you want to receive and how often. It's easy to reschedule, skip, and cancel. Plus, for a limited time, you can get $30 off your first box, plus free croissants in every box, when you go to wildgrain.com slash creep to start your subscription. You heard me. Free croissants in every box, then $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com creep. That's wildgrain.com slash creep, or you can use promo code creep at checkout. I'm a winter caretaker at a national park in Alaska, and I've got some stories to share. Written by Dark Night Tales. I'm a seasonal caretaker at a national park in Alaska. I won't say which one because I still value my job and I've been warned by my employers to keep my mouth shut about anything unusual that I've seen during my time here. That being said, there is some very strange things that I've seen over the last three years that I've held this position and I figured I would share some with you. You may not even be aware of what a seasonal caretaker is and that's completely understandable. Generally, it's not that exciting, if I'm being honest. I start my season when the park is closed for the winter, and it's my responsibility to make sure that the various cabins in public buildings are maintained and the snow is kept cleared from their roofs to prevent any damage, that sort of thing. It's a lonely job, and if you're a people person, it's probably not for you. It takes a bit of an odd duck to willingly put themselves into exile for three months at a time knowing that there's no other way out until the snow begins to melt, and the plows can start clearing some of the access roads that lead out to my cabin. I do have a snowmobile that I can use to take the three-hour trip to the nearest ranger station if I need to, but it's not like a quick trip to the corner store. It's fine for me, though. I've always been a bit of a loner, and I have Max, my Jack Russell Terrier, to keep me company. The job isn't very demanding. I typically only spend a few days each week attending to my responsibilities, and the rest of the time is mine to do with as I please. A few years ago, I took up nature photography as a hobby to pass the time, and I've even had a few of my pictures published by an organization you would recognize by name. I have framed copies of those magazines hanging on the wall behind me right now, as a matter of fact. A lot of people come through this park during the more temperate months. It's probably one of the more popular places for outdoorsy folks to come explore this region of Alaska. In the winter months, however, it's completely deserted except for a few lonely ranger stations and the like. I'll go for weeks at a time without seeing a soul. And the only person that I speak to with any regularity is my ranger buddy. We'll call him Rag, who I check in with a few times a week on the radio Aside from that, it's just me and Max. I'm not sure how best to go about telling you about some of the things that I've seen up here in the dark, frozen days of winter. So I'll just dive right in and tell you about... The shades. Well, at least that's what I call them when I'm talking to myself. I have no idea what they really are. But when the winter storms are blowing strong against my shuttered cabin windows and the visibility in the snow and dim light are next to nothing. You will see them. It's almost like looking at someone moving behind a pane of frosted glass, all indistinct and shadowy. At first, I just thought my mind was playing tricks on me, finding patterns in the chaotic static of all that falling snow. But then I started hearing them as well, like murmurings just loud enough to hear over the howl of the wind. But too quiet to recognize them as any sort of intelligent speech. It's enough to set you on edge, I can tell you that much. They tend to only show up during a heavy snowstorm, and the fiercer the storm, the closer they'll come to the cabin. It's gotten to the point where I'll make sure that I've locked my doors and windows long before nightfall if I know there is a storm coming. One time, during an especially nasty blizzard, I could actually hear them moving all around my cabin, like some sort of nightmare parade. And that night was bad. At one point, I actually saw and heard the doorknob of my front door turning, all slow and deliberate, accompanied by what sounded like soft scratching at the wooden surface. The worst of it, and I'll swear on a stack of Bibles that it's the truth, was the faint whispering voice that kept calling my name just on the other side of the door. That went on for an hour or more and even now, if I close my eyes I can still hear that cold and hollow voice. It's what I would imagine a person would sound like if their soul were ripped from their body. Now I suppose I'm being a little overly dramatic, but it's the only way that I can describe it. Alive but also lifeless. I don't know a better way to explain it. There's no reason to dwell on it, I guess. I will say that I'm not sure what would have happened if I hadn't remembered to throw the deadbolt that night, but I'm not interested in finding out. Just thinking about it makes me anxious. I mentioned it to Rick the next day after the storm had quieted when I could get a radio signal out. I expected him to laugh at me for letting myself get all spooked by the dark, but he didn't. He very calmly and firmly told me that it was better not to talk about them at all, and to just make sure that I kept myself locked up nice and tight when the heavy snowstorms came. I tried to prod him for more information, but he just refused to elaborate any further. The only thing that he would add was that not everything sleeps when winter comes on up here. I have to admit, he creeped me out more than a little with that zinger. He definitely knows something about them, and I'm going to try to pin him down one day and get more info. The next thing on the list is the car graveyard. I kid you not, if you explore far enough off the beaten trail out here, chances are you're pretty good that you'll find one. A car or truck just inexplicably deposited in the middle of backwater Alaska, like that makes any sense at all. The first one that I ever saw was an early 2000s BMW Coupe, looking like it was just off the showroom floor. Except for the fact that it was half embedded into an old spruce, that probably stood there since before cars even existed. It almost looked like the tree had grown around the car, or maybe the car had been interposed into the tree. I don't know if it's possible, I just know that it was there. I've seen a few of them during my time here, sometimes trapped in the trees like that BMW, and sometimes just sitting in the middle of an open space of ground. Every one of them looked like they were fresh off the road, and none of them had any logical way that they could have gotten out there, even without the whole stuck in the trees part. The most unnerving thing about the cars though, is the clothing. I've stopped looking and just tend to avoid going anywhere near one if I see it. But the first time that I saw one, my curiosity led me to check it out. I tried to open the doors, but they were all locked. When I looked in through the windows, though, I saw the strangest thing. In the front seats, it looked like somebody had laid out clothes. Pants, shirts, shoes, socks, the whole deal. And strapped the seatbelts around them. It was like the people in the car just vanished in mid-drive, leaving their clothing behind just the way that they had been wearing them. Eerie is one word for it, but if I'm being honest, it scared the crap out of me. The other thing about the cars is that you won't find the same one twice. When I saw that first BMW, I came back out the next day with a camera to take a picture of it, but it wasn't there anymore. I thought that I had simply forgotten where it was or that I had just gotten turned around. But when I saw my boot prints in the snow from the day before, I knew that I was in the right spot. I tried to report this to the rangers as well, but Rick told me they wouldn't even send anybody out to investigate them anymore. By the time that anybody got there, they would be gone. Apparently, reports of this sort of thing have been coming in periodically over the last 20 or 30 years and nobody knows anything about them. He did tell me that one of the rangers had found one once, a school bus from Texas, if you can believe that. In each of the rows of seats were piles of empty clothing, with the exception of the driver. The ranger that found it said that the driver was sort of there, but not really, almost like a blurry hologram frozen in time. He said that the driver, an elderly man looked like he was frozen in some terrified scream, all wide-eyed and gaping mouth. The ranger tried to get into the bus using the rear emergency door, but when he got the door open, a loud buzzing sound had filled his ears, and a high-frequency vibration ran through his body like an electric shock. He said the closer he got, the more intense the sound and sensation became. Before he could even take a step inside the bus, It grew so strong that he thought he was going to pass out. The best way that he could describe it was like when you have two strong opposing magnets that you're trying to push together. The more you push, the stronger the resistance becomes. He said that it was almost like the universe somehow keeping him out of that bus. Like he didn't belong in it. He stumbled away from it and spent the next day in bed as sicker than a dog. When he came back out a few days later with some other rangers, the bus was gone. I can't really speak for the buzzing and vibrating personally. I just know that I avoid them whenever I see them. They're just not right. The last thing that I'll tell you about today is the bridge. About a mile or so from my cabin along a maintained footpath, there's a rope bridge that crosses a deep ravine. To the side of it, there's a bit of rock jutting out, that's used as a kind of observation point. You know what I mean, where hikers will stop and take selfies along their trek to post to Facebook or Twitter or whatever. The park's department even went through the trouble of installing handrails along the edge of it to prevent anybody from falling to their death. Of course, there aren't any hikers here during the winter season. The park is technically closed and all roads leading into the area are blocked by chains to prevent anyone from driving in and getting into trouble with no possibility of rescue. I hike down that path probably once a week, looking for new photo opportunities to occupy my time. It's a beautiful walk, and the whole landscape seems so crisp and fresh, without people tromping all around it. I've gotten some incredible shots of the bridge, but I don't dare step out onto it when it's this cold. Though the boards are constantly frozen and slick with ice, I'm pretty sure that it wouldn't take much of a misstep to fall on my butt and slide out from under the waist-high rope handholds. I'd be falling 200 feet to the rocks below before I even realized what was happening. Here's the weird part though. Invariably, when I reach that bridge, I'll find multiple sets of footprints leading up to the rocky outcropping but none of them leading away from it. They'll come from all different directions, some from the path and others straight out to the trees, but they all seem to stop at the edge of the ravine. They're various sizes and stride legs, some which are very small, and others which are so large that they had to have been made by some massive hulk of a person. The first time that I saw them, I was afraid that some trespassers had gotten too close to the edge and fallen over but when I spent the better part of a day making my way carefully to the floor of the ravine, I couldn't find any sign that anyone had been there besides me. I'll be the first to admit that I'm uh, no tracker, but even I can tell when footprints in fresh snow lead up to a place and don't return. I've walked out onto that outcropping myself, once to see if I could figure out where all these people had gone. Maybe there was a hidden path that I wasn't seeing, but the moment that my foot had touched that stone, my head had begun to throb like I was suffering from the worst hangover that I'd had ever had. When I staggered back from it, the pain disappeared like it had never been there, and I was left with a pretty insistent nosebleed for the rest of the afternoon as my only souvenir. I didn't try again. Max won't even go anywhere near it, He'll started whining as soon as we approached that part of the trail. Mind you, this is a dog that I've had to, on multiple occasions, wrestle inside the cabin because he was so incensed that a pack of wolves dared wander too close to his territory. For all of his small stature, he doesn't seem to have the self-preservation gene that tells him when he should be afraid of something. But not that overlook though. That's a different story altogether. Even Max has his limits, I guess. I have more stories but I'm getting a little tired and it's about time for me to get some sleep. Tomorrow I need to head out to the cabins by the frozen lake and make sure that their roofs are clear. I'll write more later. Next time I'll tell you about the bears. Hey all it's me again. Thanks for all the great feedback on my previous update. Honestly, I wasn't sure how interested anybody would be in some of the things going on out here and I was more than a little surprised when I got back to my cabin yesterday and saw all of the responses. Before I get rolling with some more experiences that I've had out here, I just want to address a few questions that folks have made on my last update. Someone suggested that I should try to capture the shades with my camera. That's a good idea, and I've already tried that on a couple of occasions. The issues that I've run into is that, because of the darkness and the snow, I only really have two options. Either use a flash or some other light source, or else use a long shutter speed on my camera. Even though I was pretty sure neither one would work, I've actually tried both methods. Unfortunately, as anyone who has driven in a snowstorm can attest, snow is great at reflecting light, which is why you can't use your high beams when you're driving in it. The light just reflects off the snow and back into your eyes, effectively blinding you. My results using this method were about what you would expect. Nothing but a complete whiteout of the captured images. Using a slow shutter speed didn't yield any better results. All I got were images of completely incomprehensible motion blurs. I suppose there are probably better camera rigs out there that may be able to overcome these challenges, but I don't really know of them. Even if they do exist, and they're probably well outside of my budget. The National Park Service doesn't exactly pay seasonal caretakers in gold bullion. There also was a concern that, even though I'm trying to remain anonymous, I've given away enough details about myself that my employers could easily identify me. Don't worry about that. Firstly, there are more than 20 national parks in Alaska, covering over 50 million acres of land. Believe it or not, it actually contains the majority of the national park land in the entire U.S., like 65% of it. As you can imagine, there are a lot of folks spread across the state doing similar jobs to mine. It's hard to envision exactly how expansive Alaska is, and how much of it is covered with stark wilderness, unless you've been here and seen it for yourself. I know that I didn't have the faintest clue before I got here from the lower 48. I guess the bottom line is that it's pretty unlikely that anyone from the MPS will be able to identify me from what I've told you about myself. If they do, I guess we'll cross that bridge then. Finally, somebody asked about the license plates on some of the vehicles that mysteriously appear out of here in the wilderness and whether they were all from one area or from all over. I previously mentioned that I tend to avoid them if I come across them anymore, but I can tell you that the first car that I ran across, the BMW, had a European style license plate on the front. I assumed at the time that it was just one of those trendy plates that folks in the US sometimes put on the front of their European cars for decoration, but it's possible that it was legitimately from somewhere in Europe. I'm not sure. I recall that it was white and blue, but beyond that, I don't remember much about it. Of course the bus that the ranger found had Texas plates on it, but I don't know about any others, I'm sorry. Okay, so now that I've cleared up those points, let's dive into some of the other things going on out here. Since I mentioned in the previous post, I'll start off with the bears. So, you probably already know this, but Alaska has some of the largest and most dangerous bears in the entire world. Fortunately, the Kodiak and Polar Bear aren't generally found inland up here, but we still have more than our fair share of grizzlies and large black bears, both of which are apex predators and will make quick work of the unwary or unprepared. Now, since my contract covers the colder winter months, most of these bears are hibernating during my time here. That being said, not all bears hibernate, especially if they're in an area of plentiful food supply. Also, even when they are hibernating, they'll still become active from time to time, so you definitely can't let your guard down if you want to stay on this side of the grave. It's a pretty safe bet that anyone who works up here, especially alone, tends to carry a rifle as well as a large caliber handgun whenever they're outside of their cabin. I'm no exception to that. I carry a forty five seventy lever action over my shoulder and a five hundred magnum revolver in a chest holster. At first glance, it may seem like overkill. That is a tremendous amount of firepower after all. However, the first time you catch a glimpse of a mama grizzly with her cubs and realizing you're looking at about eight hundred pounds of predator that can run you down in a heartbeat, you start wondering why I don't care even more. The reason that I mention all this isn't to give you the impression that there's some sort of mythical monsters hiding behind every tree just waiting to pounce, only that they represent the top of the food chain up here, period. Nothing, and I mean nothing short of a pack of starving wolves, will even threaten one, and even that's only been documented on a handful of occasions. They're massive, powerful, and aggressive, And if you live out in their territory, don't keep your head on a swivel. You're an idiot, and are probably soon to be converted into bear crap. So, all that being the case, I'm sure you'll understand what it means when I tell you that something is killing big grizzly bears out here. I'm not talking about poachers or indigenous hunters or anything like that. I'm talking about something, as in not humans and definitely not hungry wolves let me back up a stop. My first season up here as a winter caretaker was a heck of a learning experience. Just trying to figure out the necessary maintenance routines and learning to navigate around my area of responsibility was a little overwhelming. One day I was returning from making my rounds out to one of the ranger stations that was shut down for the winter and I ended up taking a wrong turn on the trail. By the time that I had realized my mistake I was already a fair distance along the new path and wandering into unfamiliar territory. Just as I was getting ready to turn around and retrace my steps, I topped a rise and was suddenly faced with the unmistakable form of a grizzly, not thirty feet along the path ahead and facing away from me. Now I've got to tell you, I almost peed myself as I fumbled to unsling the rifle from my shoulder. It's a good thing that I didn't actually need it at that moment because I discovered to my dismay that I had stupidly slung my shoulder pack over top of the rifle's thing, effectively trapping it against my body. Stupidity and complacency are what get you killed out here folks and I could have been a perfect example of both at that moment. As it turns out the bear wasn't moving, it was just standing there perfectly still, its hindquarters facing me and I knew instinctively that something was wrong with it. Giving up on my rifle, I grabbed my handgun from its holster and cautiously approached the grizzly. My eyes intent on the bear and prepared for the slightest hint of movement. The closer that I got to it, though, the more certain I became that it wasn't going to suddenly lunge at me and give me a lesson on exactly where in the food chain I placed. Here's where it gets Surreal. Before I got close to it, I had already recognized that it was dead. What I couldn't explain was why it was still standing. It had clearly been there for a while, as there were no paw prints leading up to it in the snow, and as I rounded to the front of it, I could see the flesh around its muzzle was already starting to decompose and pull back from its skull. When I got a good look at it, I also could see that it was missing tufts of fur here and there, Despite all that, it was still standing, like it had died and just forgotten to fallen down. I looked it over pretty closely, which was still an unnerving exercise, dead or not. But I couldn't find any sort of wounds or blood that might indicate why it had died. It was then that I realized a couple of things. Firstly, that there were grizzlies in the area that were active, and secondly, nothing had scavenged the carcass. To say this is unusual is an understatement. Most of the top carnivores in this area, including wolves, wolverines, and foxes, supplement their diets by scavenging on carrion. The fact that this bear had died and remained completely intact wasn't just perplexing. It was unnatural. I reported the find to the ranger station and heard back later from Rick that... There had been nearly a dozen of other similar discoveries within that area in the last two months. The MPS had even brought in some fancy zoological pathologists from Anchorage to figure out what had killed the bears. They spent two weeks in the field with the rangers examining the carcasses, and then one morning they were just gone. They had apparently been abruptly recalled without so much as a buyer leave Immediately after that, the carcasses were destroyed. And the investigation shut down. A week later, a rushed and astonishingly brief report came back indicating death by natural predation. No further investigation indicated. Natural predation. I'm not sure how a predator could have killed the bear I found without leaving a single mark on it or a trace of blood, let alone somehow keep it standing upright after death, and then deciding that it wasn't even going to feed on the kill. I called BS and so did the rangers. Rick told me that his boss had tried to contact the pathologist for more info, but was told that they had all been reassigned and were no longer working within the park service. Not one to easily give up, Rick's boss tried calling a private cell number that he had gotten from one of the pathologists during their visit It went to a disconnected message indicating that the phone was no longer in service. This was strange. Because he had just spoken to the investigator, using that very number only a couple weeks prior, so he knew that it was a good number. But late that night, he received a call from an unknown caller. When he answered it, he recognized the hushed voice of the pathologist that he had befriended, sounding like they were whispering into their phone. Leave it alone, and forget about it, was all they said before the line went dead. He tried calling the number back several times, but it just went to dead air each time. That was the last time that he heard anything about it. He tried following up with the MPS, but somehow nobody was able to find records that such an investigation had ever existed, or even that any reports of the dead bears had been filed in the first place. Rick told me that for a while it was all that his boss wanted to talk about. It had become like a splinter in his hand that he couldn't ignore. He called anyone that he could think of in the chain of command at the NPS, and any other agencies he thought might be able to provide some clue about what was going on, but he couldn't make an inch of headway. Then one day he just stopped talking about it, like a switch had been thrown. One evening, Rick and his boss were having beers at a local bar after their shaft, and talking about how strange the whole thing was. And then the next morning, his boss had walked in, looking a little shaky and out of swords went into his office and closed the door and didn't say two words to rick that day he never mentioned the incident again a few times rick and i brought it up in conversation with him later on and his boss just brushed the whole thing off and changed subjects looking very uncomfortable about the whole thing i don't know what happened but if i had to guess. I'm thinking that his boss was probably digging into something that wasn't meant to be dug into. And somebody had convinced him that it was better if he just forgot about it. Look, I'm not some conspiracy theorist not job, okay? I just know that the whole thing stinks to high hack and I'll just leave it at that. The other thing that I'll tell you about today is what we call the Witch's Lodge. I'm not sure what it was originally. It's really not much more than a single room log cabin. Built out in the deep bush. I've seen it a couple of times and I've been inside once. It's a bit of a hike from my post and not somewhere easily traveled even by snowmobile. So I don't get out that way very often. Old abandoned cabins aren't really that unusual up here. You'll trip across them from time to time. Although most are not much more than a few walls and a collapsed roof after the years and harsh winters that we get through with them. The Witch's Lodge is a little different though, as far as I'm aware nobody's lived there for a long time, but whoever built it must have known what they were doing, because it looks every bit as solid and maintained as my own cabin. I'm not even sure how it got its name honestly, I just know that's how it was introduced to me the first time, so that's how I'm introducing it to you. A couple of years ago, my ranger buddy Rick radioed me up asking if I wouldn't mind joining him in a search for a couple of missing hikers, a father and his 12-year-old son. Now, I'm just a caretaker and I don't normally participate in ranger or SNR-related activities, but apparently there wasn't anybody else available to accompany him on that day, and he had gotten a lead that the hikers may have been heading out into my section of the park and SNR efforts especially during the dark Alaska winters. Finding someone quickly is critical if you want to find them alive, so we wanted to follow up on it sooner rather than later. Of course, I couldn't exactly refuse to help him, especially not when one of them was just a kid. So a couple of hours later, I found myself trailing behind him through the knee-deep snow. We moved along a semi-familiar path for a while before he turned left at a fork. And we started making our way along another that I wasn't familiar with. He seemed like he knew where he was headed, like he had a particular destination in mind, though we really didn't talk much during the hike. We stopped a couple of times to rest and sip some hot coffee from our thermoses, but even then we were both quiet. I think there was some sort of dark cloud hanging over his mood. I could see it in his narrowed eyes and drawn brow. It was infectious and it soon started manifesting in the back of my own mind. An hour later, we came upon the place. I was surprised to see this perfectly preserved little cedar log cabin, just sitting out here among the trees and looking for all the world like somebody would come walking out of the front door at any moment. Something about this place seemed off though. Somehow I knew that nobody lived there, that nobody had lived there in a long time. I can't explain it, but at that moment, I had this strange feeling that we weren't welcome here, like something was telling me to turn around and head back while I still could. Before I had the chance to open my mouth about it, Rick turned to me and pointed to the closed front door, where I could easily see the boot prints at its threshold. Come on, he said over the wind that had just blown up, and I could see the grim set to his expression before he turned away from me and started making his way towards the door. I noticed that he had drawn his handgun, so I did the same, though I had no idea why. We reached the entryway to the cabin and he put his hand on the latch. Before he lifted it, he paused and looked back at me with that same dark expression. We're going to have to look inside, he said. If there's nothing to be found in there, fine. We'll turn around and head back to your cabin for a couple glasses of whiskey by the fire. Maybe the other groups will find him then. His eyes were fixed hard on mine, like he wanted to make sure I was paying good attention to him. But if we find anything other than this idiot hiker and his kid inside, we're not going to look at them and we're not going to say a single word to them. Understand? Even if they talk to us first. I nodded at him more confused than anything else, but that wasn't good enough. I need you to say it, John. John. To make sure you understand what I'm telling you, he said, and the set of his eyes were so serious and determined that I repeated his instructions back to him without a second thought. When I did, he gave a brief nod and lifted the latch, pushing the door inward. We stepped through the doorway into the darkened room beyond. As soon as we did, I was overwhelmed by the stench of decay, mixed with the strong sense of herbs and something else. Something sickly riding just under the surface of all that. My eyes had just started to adjust the dim light of the interior, and I was able to make out these sparse furnishings of the room. An old rickety table with a solitary low backed chair in front of a cold stone fireplace. Along the far wall, I thought that I could just make out a cot, but I couldn't be sure. Dang it, it's happened again, Rick said almost under his breath and the tone of warning in his voice drew my attention immediately. I turned to find him kneeling next to the desiccated husk of a man's body, dressed in gray snow pants and a red down jacket, slumped back against the wall. It looked like he had been there for years, and I stumbled backwards in shock without realizing it. What the? I exclaimed, not really knowing what else to say. Rick picked up something that was resting on the floor near the man's skeletal hand looked around briefly at the room and then nodded to the door. Time to go. I'll let the SNR team know that we found the hikers, he said. I was more than a little confused. The body that we were looking at was almost mummified. It had clearly been there for a long time, and I told him as much, not to mention the fact that there was only one of them. If it was possible that this was the father, that still meant that the son was somewhere out here. It's too late, John, was all he said, pressing something into my hands as he passed me and stepped out of the door. I looked down and realized that it was holding a small notebook, like the kind of person might keep in their pocket, just in case they need to write something down. Numbly, I flipped it open. It was almost empty except for the first two pages, which were scrawled in a sloppy cursive and pencil. I don't have it anymore, so this is going to be as well as I remember it. But it should be close enough that you get the gist of it. We found her cabin. God, I wish we hadn't. Nathan's gone, she took him. I've been wandering around in here for days, but I can't find my way out. I haven't seen Nathan or her since that first day. My boy is gone. How can I not find my way out? What's happening? What's happening? I can hear her whispers taunting me, but it's always just a little farther forward around the next corner. I don't understand any of this. I'm so sorry. As it turns out, we did not end up heading back to the cabin. Rick radioed the search and rescue team that he had found the hikers in the lodge and the person on the other end paused a long moment before replying with a simple acknowledgement. No questions and nothing else. Just they acknowledged Rick. We didn't say much to each other that night. We just sat in front of my fire and drank the rest of my Jameson until we both had passed out. When I had returned to consciousness the next morning, Rick had already gotten up and left. We haven't spoken about it since that day. The notebook was gone when I awoke, so I assumed that he took that with him. Clearly, he knows something about what happened, about that cabin, but I've never asked him about it. I'm not too sure that I really want to know. It's hard enough to sleep a night out here sometimes. Speaking of which, I suppose it's time for me to sign off and get some shut eye. It's already almost 2am and I've got a long days of work ahead of me tomorrow. It's snowed pretty good today and I was already behind in clearing the roof off these storage sheds over near the old fire watch tower. I'd rather not have to deal with the damage if the roof collapses. So I'd better get over there as soon as it lets up some outside. I'll write some more soon. Good night, all. I'm back again, but I think this may be my last update. It sounds like I may have attracted the attention of someone that I didn't intend to, and after this update, I'm going to lay low and try to disappear. Let me bring you up to speed. First thing this morning, as I was getting suited up and ready to head down to these storage sheds near the old fire watchtower, I heard a knocking on the door to my cabin. Being in the middle of a closed national park in the heart of an Alaskan winter, you can imagine that I don't get many visitors. About the only people that I even see out here is my ranger buddy Rick, and the guy who brings me fresh supplies every few weeks. Rick has never just shown up at my door without calling on the radio first, and I know that he's had his hands full recently, with a few separate incidents of missing hikers and one self-professed cryptozoologist so I was surprised to hear his muffled voice calling my name through the locked door. When I opened it and ushered him inside, I saw immediately the concerned set to his expression. Without a word, he stepped over to the fireplace and warmed his hands in front of the freshly smoldering log that I had just added. Heck, Rick, he gave me a bit of a start. I told him with a small chuckle, trying to lighten the air a little. Something was up and I had a sinking feeling that it might have been something to do with me. He turned away from the fire and looked at me a long moment in silence before speaking. I got a call last night, John, he said. His face was creased with a frown. I couldn't tell whether it was one of worry or muted anger, or maybe a combination of both. Oh yeah, I replied, trying to keep the tone as casual as I could. He pulled the wool cap off his head and ran a hand over it. "'smoothing out his short, neatly trimmed hair. "'Yeah, and so did a few of the rangers, apparently. "'I nodded and took a sip from my coffee, "'feeling more uncomfortable by the moment. "'What about it?' "'What do you think it was about you?' "'He said, pointing at me with his cap. "'You've attracted someone's attention "'with your little stories that you've been posting online.' "'My stories? What stories?' "'I said evenly, feigning innocence.' I hadn't discussed these posts with Rick since I had started updating them. Sure, we've chatted about the possibility of me doing some in the past, but I haven't told him that I had actually written them. As far as he knew, I was just blowing smoke. My palms began to sweat, despite the fact that my cabin's internal temperature was probably in the low 50s, even with the fire in the hearth. I had been so sure that there would be no way the MPS or the agency or anybody else could figure out who's been writing these posts. I didn't stop to consider that they didn't need to figure it out themselves. All they needed to do was start poking around at the rangers in various areas. You see, there's no way that anyone who wasn't intimately familiar with this area could have identified it just by the details I've given. I've even made sure to change the name of the places and alter the descriptions of some of the events a little just to make it that much more impossible for anyone to figure out exactly who or where I was. In retrospect, my mistake was obvious. If I was trying to identify the source of these poses, I would probably go directly to the rangers who knew the territory even better than I do. I made the mistake of thinking that my friendship with Rick was strong enough for him to look the other way, to cover my butt. See, the Witch's Lodge isn't really known by that particular name around here. I just made it up as an alias for its real one. But I'm sure Rick would be able to identify it immediately, by reading what I've written about it. Same goes for the other stories, too. And I'm also pretty sure that the other Rangers would be able to recognize them for what they really were as well, now that I'm really thinking about it. Yeah, I messed up good this time. Okay, so here's the deal. There are things that happen out here more than I've told anyone about. More than I was ever planning on alluding to in these updates. Things that they do out here. And things they definitely do not want anyone to know about. I thought that I was being clever by sharing this with all of you. And disguising the details enough that they couldn't be deciphered and tracked back to me. Rick tilted his head at me and gave me one of those looks that told me... He wasn't in the mood for any games right now. You know the stories that I'm talking about, John. He said in a flat tone, The ones that I've told you time and time again were a bad idea. The ones that I've told you were going to get you into trouble. I tried to shrug it off and downplay it. Heck, they were just a few stories on the internet, Rick. I was having a little fun. It gets lonely out here and we all go a bit stir-crazy sometimes. You know that. Yeah, well, these little stories have stirred up trouble for us both. He said, setting his head on the chair and turning away from me, back towards the fireplace. They know who wrote them. They know who you are. I just stood there in shocked silence, mouth hanging open as I stared at my friend's back. Sudden comprehension flooding my thoughts. My eyes grew wide. You told them? I asked, stunned. How could I have been so naive? Rick had a job to do, I mean we all had jobs to do out here. We all had people that we answered to. We all knew the score. He didn't turn to face me, but I could see his head fall a little in resignation. His face was probably twisted up in frustration at my recklessness, at the position that I had put him at and if I had to guess. I hope there was a little regret there too. I would like to think that our friendship had been real enough. What did you expect? That they would just look the other way again? This isn't the first time you pulled this stuff, John. He said, glancing over his shoulder at me. I could see the darkness in his eyes in that brief moment. The resolve that had turned his features to stone, and I knew what was coming. The crackling of the flames from the fireplace... Almost covered the quiet sound of a fastener being unstopped, but not quite. He was quick, but I had the advantage. Before he even had the chance to spin around to face me, my magnum was out of its holster and thundering with unimaginable violence in the small confines of my cabin. The air filled with acrid smoke and the afterimage of the muzzle flash glowed in my eyes, superimposed over the dim firelight rick staggered to his left his own handgun falling to the floor as he reached up to clench at the blackened hole in the chest of his jacket which was now already growing red from the terrible wound beneath he looked up at me and i could see the realization in his eyes of what had just happened he reached out to steady himself against the mantle gasping for breaths that now had a horrible what rattle to them i'm sorry rick i said grabbing my pack from beside the door and slinging my rifle over my shoulder with trembling hands. I screwed it all up. I'm sorry about all this. He didn't hear me though. He had slumped to the floor and now stared vacantly at nothing, his blood pooling and spreading from beneath him across the wooden planks. He was gone. That was this morning. I took off out of my cabin as quickly as I could and strapped my pack under the snowmobile. Within a couple of minutes, I was speeding along the northern trail, away from my cabin and in the direction of the decommissioned ranger station. I had killed my friend, but he would have killed me if I hadn't acted first, I know. But that doesn't change anything. I have never used my gun to kill anything, man or beast. It was always something that was there if I needed it, like a security blanket but I never really thought that I would have to pull the trigger on anything. Man, I've made a mess of this whole thing. I thought that it was all over for me when I skirted a little too close to the edge back in Montana, but Fortune and smiled on me, and the powers that be decided to give me another chance then. There wouldn't be another parting for me this time. Now I'm sitting here in the back room of the old ranger station. I've concealed my snowmobile around back, covered by a tarp and whatever snow I could throw over top. It's starting to snow again outside, so I'm hoping that my tracks will be obscured before too long. Maybe it'll buy me some time. Just enough time to get out of this, to allow me to pose some of the truth. I have no delusions about my capabilities. I'm just a caretaker, my training was cursory at best. I'm certainly no match for their teams. My name, my real name is John Wright. I do actually work for the U.S. government, but not for the National Park Service, at least not really. I'm not going to name the organization that I work for, not because I'm afraid that they'll find out, it's too late for that now, but because their Raptor AI protocols will identify and censor this entire post before it has the chance to proliferate if I do. Once this gets out and starts bouncing around to various servers, it's much more difficult for them to make it go away. My job here is mostly what I've told you, that part's true, but that's mostly just busy work, my cover if you will. Primarily I'm responsible for keeping an eye out for trespassers who wander a little too close to their facilities, or things that have escaped from them, or unintended byproducts of whatever the heck they're doing in there. I don't really know what goes on under the mountain, and I'm sure that I wouldn't understand it even if I did. What I do know is that I'm pretty sure those cars that just appear out of nowhere, hundreds of miles from anywhere that they have any business being, are from one of those byproducts. The shades, back like, I don't know, escapees maybe. I don't even know what I hope to accomplish by writing all of this right now. Maybe it's my way of trying to make it right. Maybe I just want to make sure that there's something left in me for anyone to remember when i was posted here three years ago i saw the entrance to the facility it's about 10 miles away from my cabin bored directly into the base of a mountain i have no idea how big it is inside or how many people are in there but i know that there are a lot of big military helicopters flying in and out at the beginning and end of my seasons here i assume they're transporting researchers or equipment or whatever It just hit me that if Rick had shown up at my door a half hour earlier, I would have just been finishing my breakfast instead of fully geared up and ready to head out of the door for the day. I wouldn't have had my holster strapped to my chest, and I'm certain that I would be the one laying in a pool of my own blood right now. Come on, concentrate. I don't have time for this. I don't know what the communication protocol was that Rick was supposed to follow after he took care of me, but I assume someone was waiting for his report to confirm that I had been silenced. I have to believe that by now that they know something has gone wrong. There's probably a team in my cabin right now. It hasn't been snowing long enough to cover my tracks, unfortunately, which means they'll probably have no trouble figuring out which direction I took. It's only a matter of time before they show up here, and then it's all over right now i'm trying to type this on my notebook computer and relaying it through the ranger stations communication network i'm surprised they haven't locked down the firewalls yet i fully expected to be completely cut off from the world when i got here small blessings i guess at least i can get this out there still you probably gathered by now that most of the rangers around here aren't what they seem either some are i think but most are ex-military special forces types recruited by the agency to provide security and make sure that the caretakers don't go off the reservation like I did. Rick was that way. His real name is Mike, by the way. I won't tell you his last name. I don't want him remembered as anything other than a hero. I'm the one that messed this whole thing up. He was only doing his job, fulfilling his sworn commitment. He was an honorable man and that's how I want him remembered. My nerves are starting to get the better of me. I just took a look outside because I thought that I had heard something. I don't think that they can get here this quickly, so I'm thinking that it was only my imagination. Look, this isn't something isolated to Alaska. They have facilities all over the US. The last one that I was at was in Montana. I know there are others spread across the states. Wyoming, Texas, Kentucky, South Dakota. I mean they're everywhere. They like to build them in national parks especially those with huge areas of wilderness. It ensures a reasonable amount of privacy without drawing the sort of attention to it that places like Groom Lake or Cheyenne Mountain have done. Those two places are basically tourist attractions at this point. But man, once they tried out Alaska, it was like they had hit the jackpot. The whole area is so remote and uninhabited that they are virtually guaranteed isolation and secrecy to do whatever they are doing in there. Did I tell you about the man that I found once, half-integrated into a boulder? I don't think so. He was wearing a lab coat, but the only parts of him that were accessible were his right arm and shoulder in the back of his head. The rest of him was somehow inside of it, which was probably for the best. I'm sure that he died pretty quickly. I called that one in and they had a team out there within an hour. I left once they arrived, but when I came back a couple of days later... The whole boulder was gone, and the landscape had been made to look like it had never been there. I'm talking about the rock the size of a small house, just gone. The bear story is true, by the way. The only difference is that it was us who covered the whole thing up. That one scares the crap out of me, because that thing is still roaming out there somewhere. They were never able to find it. Heck, they lost a dozen men just trying. The same story as the bears by the way, we found the teams down near the runoff gully just standing there dead, you've never seen a nightmare until you've seen a dozen armed corpses just frozen in place. By the time that we found them, they weren't much more than gray skin stretched to tight over skeletons, but there they stood, looking like some zombie army out of a horror movie. I saw it once I think, the thing that did it. It was about the size of a tall thin man but the shape was all wrong, The joints were bent in strange ways and the head was something that reminded me of a praying mantis. It was covered in black and grey, mottled skin that looked sort of like scales but not quite. I don't know, I'm just a caretaker. I came across it while out making my rounds one day. It was clamped onto the back of one of those big grizzlies, arms and legs wrapped around it, like it was some sort of monstrous insect or something. The bear was just standing there making the most god-awful screams that you've ever heard. Like it was being burned alive or something. But it wasn't moving. It was just standing there perfectly still while this thing did whatever it was doing. Feeding on the bear somehow, I guess. I hid behind a tree and I nearly peed myself. I thought for sure I was going to hear my panicked breathing and come for me next. But it didn't. Eventually, the bear stopped making that terrible crying sound and it went quiet. A few minutes later, this thing unwraps itself from around the grizzly, takes a few steps towards a big pine tree, and it vanishes. Only it didn't really vanish. It merely stepped out from behind the tree to take a closer look at the bear when I realized that I was still looking at that thing. Only its skin had camouflaged itself perfectly into its background taking on the exact colouring and pattern of the snow-covered pine. I mean perfectly. The only reason I was able to see it was because a part of it, one of its appendages I think, was slightly protruding away from the tree. It was this break in the shape of the tree that caught my attention and it probably saved my life. I must have stood there for another hour before I finally took a step away from that tree. Its surface were turning to the black and grey splashes of colour. When it moved, it was like a stalking spider, slow and deliberate, graceful and ungainly all at the same time. It was a nightmare is what it was. It took a few steps closer to the bear like it was trying to figure out whether this was some new prey or whether it was already used up, like it had forgotten about it and it was just looking for its next meal. After that, it glided on down the trail without a sound, thankfully in the opposite direction of my hiding spot. I waited another hour before daring to move an inch, and when I did. I hauled Butt back to the cabin, locked the door and radioed the whole thing into Mike. They sent a team up but never found anything other than the bear which they very quickly made disappear. While I'm sharing my sins by the way, the real rangers, the ones that originally found the dead bears and reported it to the MBS, well you won't find them anymore. There are three of them that worked with the researchers just like I had said in my story. But a week after the researchers left, all three of those rangers somehow wandered off trail during a snowstorm, and they died of hypothermia. Yeah, right, hypothermia. You would think that the agency could at least use a little imagination when they came up with these stories. I know this whole thing took a sudden sharp right turn in you guys, and I'm sorry about that. I'm out of time though, no more time for pretext or lies. The bottom line is, you're better off staying out of the parks. Go see a movie, go for a drive, play video games, whatever. I suppose even state parks are probably safe enough, but I still wouldn't chance it. The stuff I've seen, what they've done. Okay, I'm pretty sure that wasn't my imagination that time. Time to upload the post. If I'm mistaken and I have some more time, I'll just send an update but I want to make sure this gets out there before they stop it. John Wright, former seasonal caretaker at an Alaska national park. Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you stay safe and sound. And as always, stay creepy.